0: Well, my name is Joe Trofmuck, I used to work here, and so here's what I'm going to do. As you remember, we're going through the book of Joel, and I look back in my notes, and I haven't taught in Joel since April, and I don't even remember what I said back in April, so I don't want to assume that you guys remember what I said. So what I did yesterday, as I spent the day studying, actually Friday and yesterday, so I went back through all of my messages that I've done so far in Joel and I sort of combined them all and I'm going to try and go through the first chapter of Joel in the time we have left. It's just an overview. If you want to hear more detail on any one, they're all available online, but next week we're going to start Joel chapter 2. So I thought why don't we go through Joel chapter 1, remind ourselves of what we've seen, where we've been, And it was very helpful for me, because I remember now what I was doing, and hopefully it'll set us on a path so that we can jump into the heart of the message next week. So I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to tell you to open your Bibles or your apps to Joel chapter 1, and then I'm going to read the chapter, and then we're just going to do a quick overview of everything. So, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for... The Faith Builder Sunday School class. Lord, I consider it such a privilege that I'm able to be a part of the class and to teach and lead, and it's just been so good today to see faces and to hug people and shake hands and to be back amongst the family of the Lord. Lord, I thank you for the break you gave me, but I also. Thank you, Lord, that it was just a break and I'm back and that we are here together. And so I pray, Lord, as we do this review of the book of Joel, that you'll help me have clarity of thought. I know it's overwhelming to me, Lord, with all the different things I thought about in reviewing it, but I pray, Lord, that it wouldn't be tedious or monotonous for my brothers and sisters, but that it would do a good job of setting the table so that as we jump into the material next week, the new material, that will be reminded of what's going on in this important book that you included in your scriptures so i pray lord for each one of us to be able to follow along and i pray that you would work in our hearts so that we would hear what we need to hear from your word to transform our hearts and we ask this lord in jesus name amen there's a part of me that i as i think about it I was going to just read the scriptures in sections, but I think I want to go ahead and read the entirety of it, as I mentioned I would. So you can follow along with me, and there's 20 verses, and we'll read it, and then I'll start going through it and remind you of what we've seen so far. So, Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white, whale like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is ruined. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men." Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty." Has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down. For the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame... Has burned up all the trees of the field, even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Now as we began this study, many months ago now, I originally tried to set a stage for studying the book, because the entirety of the book is framed by this first chapter, because of what transpired. And I reiterated when we started that while the book is written by a man named Joel, we don't know anything about him other than he's the son of this man, Pethuel. The reality is, it's the word of the Lord, first and foremost. Joel was the human instrument God used, but this is the word of the Lord, and it has that authority and that force And it was the word of the Lord that was coming to a subset of God's chosen people. When I originally introduced the book, I commented on the fact that while we don't know exactly where in the historical record this book fits, we know a window of where it fits. And that window was after God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, had seen their kingdom divided. If you followed the flow of Old Testament history... There were 12 tribes of Israel. And then after King Solomon died, you can read the account in the Old Testament, his son had the opportunity to respond wisely or foolishly. He responded foolishly, and so 10 tribes rebelled. In scriptures, they're often called the Northern Kingdom or Israel. And there were two tribes that remained loyal to the house of David. That was referred to as Judah. Now, it was all the nation of Israel, but in biblical terms, you'll see references to the southern kingdom, to Judah. That's who the book of Joel was written to. What's significant is that encompassed the geographical area of Jerusalem, where the temple was. So, the targeted audience of this particular book, although there were many prophecies directed at the northern kingdom Israel, this was directed at the southern kingdom of Judah. And as the historical record goes, from time to time, Judah had a good king. The northern kingdom of Israel never had a good king. So from time to time, Judah did respond. Israel never did. As a result, Israel was taken into captivity, the northern kingdom first. And it was over a hundred years later that eventually God's judgment did fall on Judah And they were taken captive as well. So we're in an area where the southern kingdom still existed. There was still a temple. There was still worship. And something occurred of an unprecedented capacity. There was a natural disaster that devastated everything about the country. The locust. The poetic language of these waves of locusts is just that it's poetic language the reality is there were swarms of locusts that wiped out everything and they came in waves you can almost imagine after the first wave goes through you're thinking well they didn't get everything then the second wave comes well there's a little bit left no by the time it was done it was devastated and for an agricultural economy it was over that was it there was no united nations to fly in grain or anything else The people were devastated. And this calamity was so great that God inspired Joel to send this message to Judah. And it wasn't just a message for the people at that time. As you remember as I was reading, it was saying, tell it to your sons. Tell Tell it to your sons' sons. This was such an historic event that it needed to be proclaimed. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. It had never happened before and the calamity was great. The locusts ate everything. The economy was devastated. There wasn't a plan B. There wasn't any backup. There wasn't any different industries. All they had was what they could grow out of the ground and there was nothing to grow. And you could imagine that the reality of what was occurring would take some time to sink in and Joel in essence targets different segments of society because he's trying to get the people to understand what transpired. He starts in verse 5 with what we would call the the party people, the leisure people. As I covered when I went over it, this wasn't in and of itself a particular targeting against the dangers of drunkenness. I read several scriptures Drunkenness is condemned in scriptures. This is though referencing some people that drank to excess, some people who didn't drink to excess. The bottom line is all of the wine is gone. The grapes are gone. So he's telling them, wake up, cry, weep, wail. Because the good times of leisure are over. They're no more. I lived in the Central Valley of California for a while and if you've been out there one thing they have in abundance are grapes. They grow more raisins there than anywhere else, but they have grapevines as far as the eye can see. You're driving down Highway 99, they're everywhere. And I picture that in my head of what would happen if suddenly they were all gone overnight. When this happened, it's not as though it just affected one crop because they ate the plants to the roots such that the roots are dead. Even if you replant, it's going to be years before anything happens. Joel pictures this as like an invasion of a foreign nation in verse 6. It's like an army. He pictures them as these great beasts, but it was just locusts, just these insects and the devastation they could do. I mentioned in my introduction, you can go on the internet and watch a locust plague. You know, they have pictures of it. You can still see what it's like. It doesn't look like it would be that bad, except it wiped out everything. Everything verse 7 begins to hint at something that I developed over time, which is trying to get them to realize this is beyond a natural calamity. In verse 7, it says, It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. It's just a picture of them dying. They don't have any natural protection anymore. And as I mentioned to you then, with several Old Testament scriptures... There was imagery in the Old Testament of God's goodness and blessing and favor. And the imagery was this. When God bestowed His blessing and favor on His people, everybody would have their own vine and their own fig tree. That's found in 1 Kings, for example. Talking about the greatness of everything under Solomon. Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. A vine and a fig tree were symbols of God's blessing. That was First Kings chapter 4, verse 25. Likewise, in Micah 4, 4, talking about the future blessings of God, he says in verse 4, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So when Joel is, in verse 7, when he's saying about the vine and the fig tree being destroyed, what he's conveying to them is beyond just the practical reality of the crops. What he's beginning to unveil to them is this is beyond a natural disaster. God himself has removed his hand of blessing from you. He wants to have their attention gripped by the fact that this... You've got to understand, this isn't just what's happening on the earth. This has theological, spiritual implications for all of us. And that's what he turns to next, because what he makes clear is that not only has God's hand of blessing been removed, there are no leisure times anymore, there's no carefully sitting around enjoying the fruit of the vine, that's over, because the vines are gone... God's blessing is gone but beyond that the worship of God is over. Verse 8 he has this picture of a woman who's about to be married and what grief she would have if she didn't actually get to be married. That's what picture of misery and suffering he is talking to when he says in verse 9 the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests The ministers are all the Levites. They mourn. The field is ruined. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. The fresh oil fails. As I covered in detail when we taught it before, and you could go back to Numbers 28, for example. Every day, the priest had one job, to present the offerings to the Lord. The grain offering required... Obviously, grain, but oil. It required, the drink offering required wine. Every day you needed that. You had to have flour. You had to have olive oil. You had to have wine. That was God's command. But the locust came and it was over. If someone was still asleep, Joel is trying his hardest to wake them up to the reality of what's happened. How, when God commands, this is what you must do to obey me, and now the means of obedience is completely gone. It's a sense of desperation. At the time that I went through this, I tried to refresh our minds of what it was like just that one little window last year when the church was closed. It was tough. And then, even when church started back, it wasn't the same because we're wearing masks and we got to sign up online and you got to get a seat and all those things. Those were just nuisances. We could still worship. Even when we couldn't physically come here, we were broadcasting. Steve could still stand up in the pulpit. We could do something. They can do nothing. But it went even beyond that. So the leisure times are over. There's no more wine to drink, there's no more relaxation. Worship is done. You can't worship at the temple. That should get your attention. If that doesn't, then your impending starvation will. That's what's happening at verse 11. Verse 12. He says, Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers. These are just the people that work in the fields. Probably he's not referring to wealthy landowners. He's just talking to people that their living is going out and picking and planting and doing. But the weed and the barley, the harvest is destroyed. It's what they use to make bread. It's what they use to live on. The vine dries up. What about fruit? Any kind of fruit you could think of. The fig tree fails. The pomegranate. The palm also. The apple tree probably are a different type of fruit. All the trees of the field dry up. In other words, everything's been destroyed. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. He's trying to make sure that they understand the full gravity of it, you can almost picture that everybody's living their little part and he's trying to get everybody together to hear the entirety of what's occurred. And as I mentioned again in more detail when I was teaching it, this really is a summary of the history of God's chosen people. When they're obedient, they experience God's blessing. That was the promise that Moses made in Deuteronomy. If you obey, you'll have God's blessing. And obviously Judah had experienced it because they had vines. They had the ability to relax. They had all of the grain. They still had their agricultural wealth. But God also made clear, and Moses laid it out in the law, if you disobey, you'll be judged. God's hand will be removed from you and all the blessings will go away. What Joel is doing is completing the picture of saying, do you realize where you are? You're in the midst of God's judgment. You had everything. But now, because of your disobedience, because you've turned away from the Lord, because you're not following the Lord, you're going to lose it all. Let me state that differently. You lost it all. Apparently, they had lost sight of what they had. Apparently, they had lost sight of God. And as promised in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 19, it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. That really sums up the entire Old Testament. Israel disobeyed. And it's just the history of their judgment. But Joel is crying out to the people and he's laying it in front of them to understand the full implications of what it all means. Again, there's no more leisure enjoyment. There's no more worship. It's possible that life itself is going to go away because there's nothing to eat. At the time, I indicated, and I said something like this in many of my teachings, but the book of Joel, with this type of warning, is to God's people, not the pagan nations. And it's the same thing for us. Because there are parallels that we can look around and say, wait a minute. America was blessed. America had all these things. And now America's losing all these things. And it's true. The response that God expects is not of all them out there. It's us. We're supposed to be changed by this. We're supposed to mourn over these things. And we're supposed to to respond, in essence, the same way that Joel told his people to respond. And that's what we covered next. So those first 12 verses were really just the calamity. It was who was the message from God? Who was the audience, the people of Judah, God's chosen people? What was the calamity? explained what had happened. But then he starts telling them what to do in verse 13. The first response is to have a hard attitude of humility. Verse 13 says, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Again, repeating that the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Starting from the leadership, the priest... He's talking about humility before the Lord. Uh, You've referenced many verses that quite often you see sackcloth as a symbol of humility. Self-sufficiency is gone. I realize this isn't a problem I can solve. I have to lay before the Lord the burdens. It's humility. He's not saying spend the night in some literal sense of let's have a sleepover. He's talking about a hard attitude of continually being before the Lord broken, contrite. It's interesting because his phraseology again is making evident that this isn't just a natural disaster. It says, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. It's not that they're not available, it's that God took them away. That's what's jarring about it. That's what's so frightening. It should be frightening to the people because God is the one that brought the locusts. This wasn't random chance. This wasn't just the wind blew the wrong way. God brought judgment on them. The reason they can't worship is because God took away the means. So the response to the calamity, there had to be a hard attitude of humility. The second thing was there had to be a turning to God in desperation. And that's exactly what Joel says. Verse 14, Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders. That would be the leadership and the inhabitants of the land. That's everybody else to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. In essence, he was saying, stop everything. Stop what you're doing. The priest will be there. The leadership will be there. The people should be there. Everybody, drop everything. Now's not the time to worry about food or anything else. There's nothing else you can do. Don't go looking around the fields. Don't go try and find something. That's not the answer to your problem. The answer to your problem is to come together at the Lord's house and cry out to Him. That's the desperation. As your elders, we imperfectly do it, but that's part of why we're trying to do better at having more prayer times. Because we are aware in ourselves, and in our people, in our family, that we aren't desperate enough. One of the things that I struggle greatly with is pride. God has given me the ability to do things, and sometimes I forget that God gave me the ability to do things, such that if I have a problem, I'm going to solve it. My first thought isn't often, okay, Lord... Help me, it's I'll fix it. And far too many times, it's only after my fixes didn't work that, oh, I should probably pray. That's foolishness on my part. It's foolishness always on the part of God's people. We always have to be desperately in need of Him. He's the only one who can deal with our problems. But in this context, in essence, by sending a warning through Joel, God has given the people one more chance. And that really led to the final aspect of what I was teaching before. It's the third aspect of the proper response. There must be a recognition of the consequences if there is no repentance. Because things will only get worse. That's wordy and a little convoluted. Here's the point. The people had to understand if we don't repent, if we don't do these things, as bad as it is, it's going to be worse. Verse 15 really is the turning point of the book because it gets to the heart of what's going on. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. What Joel is doing, but in reality what God is doing is He's telling His people, look, you have to get your spiritual house in order now because if you don't, the coming judgment and destruction from God will find you unprepared and the locusts will seem like a picnic throughout the Old Testament there's reference to the day of the Lord in fact there's reference throughout Scripture to the day of the Lord and as you read different things what you realize is there is an ultimate day of the Lord down the road when God will make everything right Jesus will return every knee will bow every tongue will confess And as believers, and this is important, I'm gonna go through it. As believers, we look forward to the day. Why? Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We've been cleansed by his blood. When that day comes, we read the scriptures. The promise of God is that for us that day is going to be wonderful. But understand this, we're on this side of the cross. If we try and put ourselves in the position of the original recipients of this letter, certainly prophecies about a coming Messiah are in the Scriptures, but they don't know what we know. Jesus hasn't come. He hasn't already shed His blood. So when you go back into that context, the day of the Lord for Israel, in many respects, and I went through Scriptures on this, in many respects, the day of the Lord was the day of their revenge and how they thought. Why do I say that? Because God was going to afflict the enemies of His people on the day of the Lord. So if you were talking to the Old Testament, I won't even call them believers, the Old Testament nation of Israel, if you talked about the day of the Lord, it would have become, in their minds, not so much a personal encounter with God, but a national vindication. I'm... Not a historian, but I love history. For whatever reason, my mind has always gravitated towards World War II, and I read a lot about it. I'm reading a book right now. I think part of it is because there's so many theological things I see woven through when you see the utter depravity of man, but you also see the fierce attempt to wipe out the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. You can see so many threads, theologically, that come together. But on the other side, America won. I like that; it's good. How come we, we win? You know, my grandpa fought in the war. It's a source of pride. At the end of the day, if you look ahead to any book on World War II, we win. There's a sense in which the nation of Israel misread the prophecies on the Day of the Lord, because they were looking forward and they were saying at some point this the end and we will have won. Egypt, Babylon, the Philistines, it doesn't matter. God's going to get them all for us. So in their minds, they were looking forward to the day of the Lord because everybody they hated would get put in their place. And there's one sense in which that was true. God is going to judge all those nations. God did judge many of those nations already. What Israel misunderstood was that they also had a bullseye on them because they weren't walking with the Lord. You think of the number of times that Jesus interacted with the Pharisees and they thought they were okay. Why? Because we're children of Abraham. And Jesus continually tried to disabuse them of the notion that their genetics made them right with God. Yes, they were God's chosen people, but they still would give an account to Him. Really, something like that was going on in Joel because the people... Look forward to the day of the Lord because they thought all the bad guys are going to get it. They didn't realize they were one of the bad guys. And that's what Joel is doing here is he's trying to get them to open their eyes to realize if your heart doesn't change, the day of the Lord isn't going to be a day of vindication where you're waving the flag of Judah and saying, we win. It's a day of your humiliation that will be even worse than what you just experienced when everything was taken away from you. The day of the Lord is near, yes, but you shouldn't look forward to it right now. That's why you've got to cry out. That's why you've got to humble yourself. That's why you've got to fall on your face before the Lord. Because God's going to settle the score. You just don't understand you're on the wrong team. Of course God will take care of his children. Of course, for those of us in Christ, there's no condemnation. What a great hope. But even we would say, look, just because you're a member of a church doesn't mean you're going to avoid the judgment. You've got to be humble and broken before Jesus Christ and understand he's king of kings and lord of lords. And yet he laid down his life for sinners like you. It's got to be a personal turning and brokenness. And while Joel is appealing to the nation, the nation is comprised of individuals. And he's calling each of them to have that humble heart attitude of utter desperation and dependence on the Lord. Here's the bottom line, judgment is going to fall on some people that think they're okay. That's why Jesus said, not all of you who say to me, Lord, Lord, are going to be okay. I still don't know of a more chilling passage in all of Scripture. Depart from me, I never knew you. In essence, that's the nation of Judah. They're in danger of that very thing And what Joel's making clear to them is, look, you need to repent now, not tomorrow, not another day. God's given you a taste of His judgment by taking away everything. But what's coming is even worse. It's a day of destruction. It's from the hand of God. And this is your warning. This is your chance. All throughout Scripture, I read an extensive passage from Amos chapter 5, talking to the nation of Israel, where it's not going through the motions. In a sense, you could almost see that that's part of why God took away the ability to go through the rituals because God's not pleased by just those sacrifices. He commanded them, they had their purpose, but at the end of the day, he wants the heart, not outward conformity to some standard. The day of the Lord isn't something they should have been looking forward to, not yet. They need to be broken. He reminds them, verse 16, the food's cut off, it's gone. There's no gladness and joy in the house of God. Do you understand what's happening here? Verse 17 and 18. All the crops, everything is gone. There's no storehouses, there's no seeds. You can't even plant more crops. That's gone. The animals don't know what they do. The cattle wander. They don't know where to go. There's nothing to eat. The sheep don't know what they're doing. Verse 19. Joel begins to lead by example. It appears that not only had the locust eaten everything, but it seems likely that there was also a drought that accompanied all this. But Joel sets the example. He's told the people, everybody come together and cry out to the Lord. Verse 19, to you, O Lord, I cry. He knows what's happened. The pastures are gone. The trees are gone. The beasts are even crying out for you. There's no water. There's no anything and he's telling the people, I don't have anywhere to go. I'm crying out to you for mercy. And that's all we covered over those few weeks. So we're at a turning point. Because the people are being given an opportunity to respond, they're being given an opportunity to cry out to the only person who can fix their problems. Cry out to God because the God of the universe can make everything okay. The future day of judgment is going to be a theme as we go through the rest of Joel. That warning is there. But also, the opportunity for repentance. As I look at where we sit, first for each one of us, we need to make sure that we've repented, that we're humble before the Lord if you think of all the problems that we have, and we have many, as individuals, as families, as communities, as our church, as American Christians, as a country, you take all those problems, at the end of the day, the only solution for all of them is God Himself, Jesus Christ. I don't think about it enough myself, but every time we gather At church, God's being gracious to give us another chance. For us as believers, it's just the opportunity week after week to get our hearts right with the Lord. But there are unbelievers in our midst every single week. In fact, you should be praying for them because you don't know who they are. For years, I was in church and I was one of those unbelievers. But God is giving the opportunity even today for sinners to repent before the day of judgment. So again, as we go through this, we have a lot more to learn ourselves. And I pray that the Lord will guide us through these two chapters. And the Lord will do the work in our hearts necessary for us to serve Him fully. So let me close our time with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, what a joy it is for me to be back with my brothers and sisters Lord I know this review was very helpful for me I pray it was helpful for others and Lord I can't escape the parallels that I see in so many ways it seems evident that you've removed your hand of blessing from our society and you're pulling it back further and further Lord, I pray that your people will respond correctly. Lord, we want to be good citizens. We want to do the things we do to benefit the community. We want to vote. We want to do all those things. But Lord, help us never lose sight of the fact that none of those things are the ultimate solution. The solution is for our fellow citizens to submit their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we will learn the lessons that we need to hear from this book. I pray that we'll have a renewed passion in our heart for sharing Jesus Christ, for standing up for the truth, for being a light, calling people to repent in a dark, dark time. And Lord, through it all, we pray that everything we do, however imperfectly, will bring you praise and honor and glory that you deserve. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your continuing mercy to sinners like us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.